difficulties with folks just, you know, having, having stuff like that. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, we, we lift up all these people that have been either sick or infirmed in some way. We just pray that your blessing would rest on them, that healing would go quicker and, 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 uh, and, and easier than expected. We pray for uh, wisdom and direction in, in the doctor's hands and just for uh, these, these situations to bring about great conversations of your glory and your grace. We just praise you that you are uh, with our people that are sick, that you are doing something even through those difficult times. We know, it, especially for Kristen, just being so willing to give a kidney to a coworker that she really hardly knows. We just praise you for that, for that kind of uh, heartfelt just generosity to give a piece of your own body to somebody so they could live. We praise you for that, Father God. And we just do pray for all the people in Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, just anybody that is affected by that. And we pray especially for our Christian workers that we're partnering with there to be able to just you know, run hard and, and not lose steam. We pray that you would flood them with all the resources they need and the creativity and the, the, the connections that they need to love people well very practically with food and housing and different things like that, but also to do that in the love of Christ and the message of Christ as people are uh, obviously very broken. And we know that they've already built up a really good, strong uh, reputation over the years as organizations there. So we thank you for, for them, um, both those organizations. And uh, we ask that you would just reveal yourself this morning. Come. Father, we pray that, you, that this would not be a time for Jason to say things to people. But we all remember those days when we sat in a church service and a pastor preached, and it couldn't be anybody preaching. It doesn't really matter. The, what, what we want to hear is your voice, what you have to say to our hearts. So we pray that Jason would fade to the background, and you would just impress on us exactly what you want us to hear. Each individual in this room, you're the only one that knows every one of our hearts. And so we just pray that we would be attentive and listen for your voice this morning. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Woo, quite emotional, the pastor. <laughs> Big old crybaby, man. Well, um... We've been in Proverbs. We'll be here, I think, for another week, I, if I remember correctly. But um, the movie Inside Out, if you've ever seen it at Disney Flick, is an interesting sort of look at emotional intelligence and health, right? If you've ever seen it, the characters are sort of different uh, emotions personified, such as joy and anger and, and, and sadness and things like that. And in, in, in the story, all these emotions, uh, you know, are little characters that live inside this girl's head, this, this young girl's head. And joy and sadness, you know, are often in conflict with each other because joy tends to think sadness is not very helpful, right? That, that she's always make, making the girl sad and joy thinks that she gets frustrated because she thinks the girl should always be happy, right? But joy discovers over time that you can't be happy all the time and that you need sadness sometimes to fully experience life. That you, joy can't be fully appreciated without some sadness in your life, right? 
So today's message looks at the Proverbs, at, at what it has to say about being happy, about being joyous, about being content, things like that. But it's important to understand that we're not talking uh, about happiness in the sense of ignoring or suppressing our sadness, right? The happiness Proverbs speak of, speaks of is much deeper and much more profound, right? So Proverbs 3.13 states it this way. It says, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. Blessed are those who find wisdom, blessed are uh, for those who gain wisdom. Now, you might say, Jason, the words joy and happiness are not in there. But the Hebrew word for blessed is esher, and it, it can mean either blessed or happy, right? So the King James uh, Version uh, renders it as happy is the man. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, right? In other words, there is joy in finding wisdom. The Proverbs doesn't say happy is the one who finds a better job or wealth or success in this life or happiness is found in wine, women, and song, you know, all that kind of stuff. Happiness is found in wisdom, and wisdom comes from knowing God, right? A relationship with the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 20 states this well. It says, whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is the one who uh, trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, which tells us that joy is found in knowing and trusting in God. Not a weak sort of fire insurance sort of relationship of, you know, fire insurance type of love, you know, where I, I just escape hell, you know but rather an ongoing, daily sort of devoted love that is filled with wisdom and filled with understanding and filled with the knowledge, that, uh, this, this growing knowledge of God, right? So what is this wisdom? Well, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 tells us some of it. It says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listen to that, if you accept my words, accept them, don't argue them. Don't try to pick them apart. Accept them. Store them up in your heart. Store up my commands within you. Turning your ear to wisdom and, and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if, now let's listen to this, if, 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 right? If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as, as for silver and search for it as, as hidden treasure, as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of, of God, right? If then, if then, right? For the Lord gives wisdom, he says, verse 6, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk, whose walk is blameless, uh, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Amen. Those are rich, rich, good words aren't they? And this tells us a few things, doesn't it? Firstly, that wisdom and understanding and insight originate from God's mouth, right? From his word. He took the time to write us a book. He gives it to us, right? I remember when I was a young Christian, I just, there was a time when I just prayed for wisdom. I, I was at this point where I, I was crying aloud for wisdom, for understanding, and God blessed me with it like crazy. My life changed. Life changed like crazy, right? We should ponder the thought, and I've said this before, of what the world would be like if the Bible had never been written, right? Think about that. I, it's been a nagging thought on me for a while now. If common things like 
love your neighbor as yourself, or do unto your neighbor as you would have them do unto you, had never been penned, what would this world be like? It would be a very different world. I'd love to see that movie, right? Where the world, with a world where the, the character and the nature of God were never expressed, never communicated to humanity in any way, shape, or form. It would be a very dark, bleak existence. Do you understand how much God is sustaining this world by just by his word, by his character? And if you believe the biblical narrative, right, that God is the originator, the creator of all that there is, that his fingerprints are all over creation, that especially all, all over us as, as, as people, which he has made in his image, then we would actually listen to his word, wouldn't we? Right? If we really believe that. As his creation, this means anything good which comes out of us, originates from within him. Nowhere else. Think about that. Humanity, as we know, was like a mirror reflecting the nature of God in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, mirroring God's faithfulness and love and fidelity in Adam and Eve's relationship together. It was perfect. Joy, peace marked all that. But that mirror, as we know, is shattered due to our sin. And now when we look into it, it's an incomplete sort of distorted image getting even worse over time as pieces fall out over time. Intrinsically broken. And that's not a negative statement, by the way. Maybe some remnants of goodness sort of remain, but shards are missing. Cracks overwhelm it, right? It was a hyper-realistic portrait, but now it's more like a Picasso, right? And by the way, that is actually a drawing of a man on the left there. Isn't that cool? Love that. But now, if you believe, don't believe that, right? And if you believe that humanity is basically good, intrinsically good in, na good in nature and complete in its image, but we just got to clean the mirror every once in a while, you know, clean the glass every once in a while, that we actually come up with these good, positive, life-giving things on our own, out of our own goodness, then you will either not value God's word to the level that it should be, or it'll be at least sort of placed at a lower level in your life uh, with other things taking priority over it. You'll either disregard it totally, eventually, or you'll put it on equal footing with all those intrinsically false wisdom and philosophical or, or ontological li literature out there or, or, the or ideologies out there, right? To truly value God's word in all of its richness, we need to value God for who he is while being honest about who we are in light of him. We, we need to see that clearly. Like Martin Luther said, we are caterpillars in a ring of fire right? It's a hopeless situation. No matter which way we turn, we are burned up by our sinful nature, by the sin of the world. You know, we just can't get out of it without the divine hand of God above plucking us out of our predicament and saving us from above. That's good Christian theology right there. A little, a little toot my horn a little bit. 
totally reliant on his grace to repair the mirror of our lives, making that reflection whole again in Christ. He accomplishes that through the cross. Making a reflection now, which will express the joy of salvation and the wonderful character of God to the world all around us. And if we are clear about who God is and who we are in light of him, then we will do the second thing that I think these verses talk about, and that is to search for, to accept, to store up these commands in our hearts and minds with a great passion. We will eat up that word, right? Feeding ourselves with it all the time. We'll cry out for it knowing it's a matter of life and death. And that it is highly applicable, highly practical and applicable to all of our daily life, in work, in relationships, in family, in leisure, and everything. Notice all these strong verbs that he uses here. Accept, store up, turn your ear, apply, call out, cry aloud, look for it, search for it, as if it's treasure, right? Dig it up, get into it, right? That's what he's talking about. There's a reason that such intense language is used because this is what life is all about. Whether you know it or not, it is what life's all about. A connected, ongoing, growing relationship with the creator of the universe. That's what you have. Verses 1 through 5, as I said, are just a large if-then statement, right? If you do this, then this will happen, since we know it is promised to us. The one who seeks wisdom will find it and will discover knowledge of God, resulting in a blessing and a protection and a successful, long, fruitful life. Not that we will not have troubles. We're not preaching a prosperity gospel, but a wonderful, good, deeper life. Wisdom and Understanding are actually a reference to the knowledge of God, to knowing who he is, what he is, and that connection with him. A knowledge that isn't simply being aware of God like you're aware of the weather, right? But it's a relational knowledge which affects daily life every moment. Remember the Shema we've read in the last couple weeks? When you get up, when you lie down, when you're with your family and press it on your kids, everywhere, all the time. Not just Sundays, right? In other words, God's word isn't some just heady theological, ontological talk. It's extremely practical. It's extremely applicable, affecting our well-being, our happiness, our joy, our contentment, and our relationships and our purpose in this world. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, fleshes this out a little further. It says, every word of God proves true. That can also be translated is flawless. I'm a firm believer in that, that the word of God is flawless. Every word of God proves true, is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Amen. By the way, I love to hear the amens. It, it is Makes me feel good. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> uh, so through an intentional approach to the scriptures, and, and, and a going at it, 
we discover wisdom and joy. It's as simple as that. A wise person uses God's word to get to know God better and to grow their trust in him. And out of that trust comes a level of joy which, you know, transcends our surroundings, our circumstances, anything around us, a deeper, more profound sense of well-being. I'm not always happy, but there is something in me that is unshakable because of this. We're not talking about being happy-go-lucky all the time. We're talking about owning the sadness sometimes and understanding our joy out of that, right? Is your life marked by a strong pursuit of wisdom and understanding to know God better day in and day out? Many of us might say yes. But let's take stock of two different Christians. Now, don't feel guilty when I do this, all right? I'm not saying doing this to make anybody feel guilty. And you might be like one, you might be like the other one, or you might be somewhere in, the between, in between on some sort of a spectrum there. But firstly, we have Christian A. We have Christian A. And if a fun opportunity arises, or he had a late night on Saturday night, by the way, uh, Wayne over here, who uh, played in New York last night, got home at 4 in the morning and still made it here. I'm amazed at that. God bless you, brother. <laughs> Nobody would have faulted you for staying home. <laughs> but if an opportunity arises or he had a late night or he just feels a little bit off on a Sunday morning, he's easily persuaded to ditch the Sunday service, and he makes, as a result, about 12 to 24 out of the year. There's 52 weeks in the year. He seeks advice from friends or experts but it never occurs to him to go to Christ in the Word and pray for decisions. His friends are mostly non-Christians, and he justifies that by saying that we should be around sinners. As a, as a result, the counsel that he gets in life isn't biblical in nature. And his friends, by the way, couldn't, tell any, couldn't point to any real evidence that he has faith. They might even be surprised that he's a Christian. He's a good dad, but outside of taking his church kids to church every once in a while, he never speaks to them about Christ, about the Bible. He, he never prays with them or for them. It just doesn't occur to him. And if his kids were asked, does dad love Jesus, they might respond, I guess. He, I mean, he goes to church sometimes. I don't know. His wife might say, he's the same guy I married 20 years ago. He hasn't changed I gave up a long time ago trying to address issues with them. We've settled into a pattern that we can both live with, but really I wish it was different. He might say, I should go to Bible study tonight, or, but I'm just too tired at the end of the day. Or I would go if they actually were talking about something that, was applied, that applied to my life. He tithes about 2% of his income begrudgingly. Their family is disconnected and filled with activity. He's gone through spurts of having a quiet time where he sits and, you know, tries to read the Bible and tries to pray, but it's very sporadic and it's definitely not a priority in his life. The cross is small in his life and no one would even notice it. And it's an afterthought. It's a compartmentalized cultural thing. Now we have Christian B. It has to be a very, very good reason for him to, to miss a Sunday service, or a Bible study, and as a result, he makes about 48 services out of 52 in a year. 
He takes every thought and decision to God in prayer, weighing everyone against the Bible, always asking himself, what would Jesus have me do here? He surrounds himself with like-minded believers who pursue Christ in the same way that he does, and they counsel him in light of the Bible. And as a result, he makes really good choices. He orders his family life so that church is number one priority, memorizes scripture with them, and studies it with his family. If asked, does dad love Jesus, his kids would answer, yes. We pray together often. Everything he does is ordered towards Christ. Every morning I see him have his quiet time. He will not miss it. He, uh, He knows his Bible. He helps me to understand things when I have a question. It's sometimes embarrassing how much he talks to, to other people about Jesus. And his wife says, that man is better than the day I married him. He's grown so much in his faith. Our marriage is stronger as a result. They limit outside activities to have a family life together, and they eat dinner together about five to six nights out of the week as a family. He tithes at least 10%, but over and above that when he sees special need, like Syria or Lebanon, right? The cross is large in his life, and nobody can miss it. It's not compartmentalized. It is central to everything that he is and does. Now, if we realize that the Christian life is a journey and not necessarily a destination, person A could still show greater conviction and devotion. God might convict them, and they might move deeper in their walk. And B has only shown that to this point, and he may not someday. We don't know. But ask yourself, where am I? What am I? Who am I in that scenario? Most of us feel our sadness, even dip into great depression at times, don't we? We live in anxiety, we, with, with some of that turning to bitterness and anger and even rage. And we keep busy in order to not feel that pain that God could actually heal if we gave him the chance. We don't grow up as we grow old. We just grow more sad, more pitiful, more busy and more cranky. Okay, that was a smile. But if we pursue the Lord strongly, and I think this is what's happening to the church in America, maybe the world, God is starting to convict us of these things. If we pursue the Lord strongly, we find balance. We won't rid ourselves of sadness, right? Because we need it. But we would not be overwhelmed by it in the greater understanding of ourselves in light of Jesus. Our position with him. And in him, we can find contentedness and even wisdom, even joy, and even happiness at times. And then we can experience what Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 urges. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it again. Rejoice. I was rejoicing worshiping this morning. Rejoicing. And that's not just, you know, he doesn't just say that, right? He says that because he's learned something. In, in verses 11 through 13, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him, Jesus, who gives me strength. This is true. This is reality. It's not just pithy words. We mistakenly watch the lives of others from a distance, and we we draw false conclusions of them, don't we? We see those in wealth, and we think they're happy. Just watch the Bernie Madoff whole thing uh, on Netflix. Guy died in jail. His oldest son killed himself. His second son died of cancer two years or three years after he was arrested. And his wife, everything was taken from them. She was living out of her car. $65 billion Ponzi scheme, and that's what happened to them. But we draw these conclusions. We think, well, they're happy. They're happy. Likewise, we see a person living simply, and they seem to have found the key, right? Oh, he doesn't need anything. He's really happy. But we don't see behind those closed doors into the recesses of their minds, into their emotive life, right? It's, not off, it's, it's often not until somebody dies, you know, that the truth comes out about what they were really like or, or when something is discovered about them and it's pasted all over social media, exploited by somebody else, you know, for their own personal gain, that we actually see their sadness and their discontent. Robin Williams and Anthony Bourdain. Two men who seem to have it all, one hilariously funny, the other with a dream job of traveling and eating great food in beautiful places. I wanted that job. Looks that way, too. (laughs) Both lives (laughs) ending in suicide. Overwhelmed by sadness, and no one saw that coming. Nobody saw it coming. If we could turn up the volume on the rich and the poor... In their private moments, there would be a lot more weeping than there is laughing. Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of, so, and, uh, uh, dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. True. Contentment is simply not found outside of ourselves. Yet we chased after that, that stuff with a passion out there. That's going to make me happy out there. How much is enough? The answer is always more. How how much more money do you need? Another dollar. Right? Any addict will tell you they're always chasing that first high, that elusive, sort of ever more elusive and never found high. It's just not there. It's not there. However, the wise understand that to know God brings ultimate balance and peace and joy. They seek him day in, day out to build a relationship brick by brick, ultimately to a solid fortress of soul unshakable. Outside circumstances or even inner turmoil of thought and feeling can't topple the wise who seek understanding and knowledge of God, which brings balance to their inner being. A lifelong journey of building with solid material to weather any storm. In many ways, though, our relationship with God, with Jesus, is like a marriage. 
Imagine being married to someone, but you never talk, you never make effort to get to know each other. What would that marriage have? Would it have any, any intimacy or joy or trust or love? Probably not. Yet many of us approach our relationship with Jesus in the same manner. No effort to talk to him, little attempt to get to know him through scripture and through prayer. There's just no trust in anything. If we don't seek joy through a relationship with Jesus, then we will seek it through other means, other idols, we call them in the Christian life, right? And we we're, we're going to find out that we're seeking joy in all the wrong places. It's elusive. Any architect knows that a solid foundation is essential to any building, right? Once foundations laid and supports are put in, the rest of the structure can be built very, very strongly. And I guarantee you there's going to be a lot of conversations about the building practices in the Middle East after a great earthquake. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, As for anyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. The wise builder hears the word of God and applies it to life and as a result stands firmly through turbulent times. The foolish builder doesn't obey, doesn't apply God's principles or his instructions, resulting in ruin when a storm of life comes. Who's happiest in that scenario, right? As a follower of Christ, your spiritual foundation is absolutely vital. Following Christ, submitting to his wisdom, builds a solid foundation based on godly values and beliefs. And as you base your life on him... There are a few areas that you'll need to continually focus on to cultivate a strong, healthy spiritual life. The first one is the, the issue of your faith, your trust, your growing relationship with Christ through obedience and application of his word are crucial to building this strong foundation of faith. And when storms come, you'll be grounded in biblical truth, remaining steady in moral challenges. You won't bend. But disobedience cracks the foundation, so it's wise to seek God daily, asking him to search your heart, to make known to you what actually displeases him and is actually not good for you. And then you have these family relationships and godly relationships, right? Relationships are vital in the Christian life and important to God, and they need to be valued. They need to be esteemed. A Harvard study said that the happiest people are those who have strong relationships around them. God desires you to love others and to build them up, realizing that bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that. We are careful with whom we share our hearts with. We really are. Your finances are involved, right? Being good stewards of our finances is a spiritual discipline which blesses God, blesses others, and blesses yourself. Generous people are happier. 
Living outside of our means and accumulating debt are unwise, and they bring weight upon you. When you manage finances well, you eliminate needless stress. It's as simple as that. And then food and fitness, one I have to listen to, play into this as well. Your body is God's temple. To harm your body is to dishonor God. Keeping healthy is a spiritual discipline to which God calls us and permits us to carry out his greater plans for our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about that. And finally, fellowship. What you're doing right now, right? We need to be planted in a local church where worship, word, and fellowship are experienced. It's largely where we grow and where we use our spiritual gifts with uh, which God has blessed us with, and his church is built up in the process. 1 Corinthians 14. Wisely investing ourselves in these ways, we become more spiritually and relationally and financially and physically and emotionally and socially fit to live a life of influence of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Jesus was teaching about the foundation for living. When we adhere to his words, happiness and joy and peace and mercy and heaven is actually ours in the here and now. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we'll be filled. We will be filled. That's a promise. The law of God is in place to honor God and to protect us. It's always the basis for our, our, our daily life. Putting others before ourselves, focusing on Christ and inner transformation. To build a sure foundation of faith, when the storms of life hit, we must be investing in a sure and solid spiritual foundation, day in and day out. Investing time, reading, studying, praying the scriptures, seeking the presence of God in every decision that we make, in every scenario that we find ourselves in. Consistently inspecting our foundation, asking, what are we basing our lives upon? Allowing the Holy Spirit to, you know, complete access to a heart and soul, revealing any neglected area in our hearts, acknowledging and tending to spiritual repairs quickly when we need to. And ensuring it remains solid by trusting the Lord, knowing that the promises of God are sure. Abiding in his word, where we see his power and his promises and his provisions and his presence in our life. Applying it to our lives in confidence of good outcomes, with our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Remaining spiritually sort of vigilant and seeking to do the will of God. Remaining faithful, determined to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting, disregarding the temptation to simply coast through life. So invest in your walk with Jesus to find contentment and happiness from here on out. Call out. Cry out to him. Read his word. Place your trust in him. And make this your habitual lifestyle, like the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, 
which we've spoken of in past weeks. One of the greatest things you can pray for in your own personal life is that God would increase your desire for him. So let's pray that right now. Father God, we thank you that you love us, that we thank you that you've given us every mechanism to know you well, to walk with you well, to experience joy and contentedness and happiness and not to be knocked off our horse just by a sad day or a sad moment or even a sad season. Lord Jesus, we want our desire to be great for you. I pray for increased desire over this crowd. I pray that you would bless them with the gift of wanting you more. I pray that you would blow away and you would sweep away all the clutter from our hearts so that we can see that sort of home plate of, of being in a deep, intimate relationship with you. Break our hearts. Make us want you more. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray.